0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. A couple of years ago, uh, I was the youth director. As a re- user, I was the youth director here, and I had the privilege of working with those Pathfinders that are going to be marching on Sunday, and the Adventurers. I think it's marvelous that we have such a program as Pathfinders and Adventurers, and uh, little lambs and eager beavers that teach character-building principles. And then, of course, when they're completed, we are able to uh, recognize them and give them the uh, honors and, and and achievements that honor those achievements that they've made. Well, one of the things that I always like to do is uh, when I was uh, able to do that, I was... I would be able to come and join them for an investiture. Investiture where we would give them those pins that they had earned for completing those uh, requirements. And I actually uh, was scheduled over here at Cedar Lake right across the road on a Sabbath. And right after Sabbath, uh, the church service area, in the afternoon, I was supposed to be in Mount Pleasant, which is not too far away. So I enjoyed being with those kids in the morning during church time had the time to visit with them and spend some time with them and then I looked at my watch and I thought oh no I'm gonna be late to my next appointment I better hurry so I quickly said goodbye to them put took my coat off my uniform off uh, and I hung it on a hanger and I put it on the back you know right behind my seat and hung it right there by the window and then I started off towards Mount Pleasant now some of you guys that are around here know that it's a little shortcut if you go down 46, and then you go down Warner Road. And so, as I'm I'm heading down 46, I called my wife and just to have a, a nice conversation with her while I'm driving. And said, I think I'm I'm late. And when she says, Be careful. I said, No problem. I'll be careful. Well, I turned off a of 46 on Warner Road, and there's a spot there. And those of you who are local, you know, there's a long stretch. It's kind of flat, has very little shoulder, if any, on the side of the road, and very deep ditches. And so I'm intent on trying to be on time where I'm supposed to be, and I'm driving along talking to Gail, and all of a sudden I see a very unique car come towards me. And this unique car has this this effect on me that every time I see it, I look to see how fast I'm going. And when I looked at my speedometer, I realized that I was well over the speed limit. And I said to my wife, I said, oh, no, I'm going to get a ticket. And she said, you're going to get a what? I said, I, I'm going to get a t- You were, weren't you watching how fast you were going? I said, no, I'm sorry, sweetheart, i got to go. I looked in my rearview mirror, and I could see that the taillights came on this car. And it stopped, but it couldn't get me right away because there was two more cars coming, and they had to come. And so I saw him trying to turn around, back and forth, back and forth, until he got around, and then he flipped his lights on. And I thought, well, you know, I might as well just, you know, there's no place to pull over. So as soon as I came to the first road, it was a gravel road, I pulled off on this gravel road, and I just waited. Rolled my window down, got my driver's license, my registration, and I just waited. And sure enough, that car came around with some gusto. And as as the tires hit from the pavement to the gravel, it kind of spun out, and a cloud of dust came up, and he pulled it behind me and stopped. And I could look in the side-view mirror, and I'm watching and he gets out of the car and he slams the door back and he starts walking towards me. And now he's a man on a mission. And I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, oh man, I, I'm really in for it this time. But he gets as far as, as the back of my car and he sees something hanging in my window. And he stops at right there and he's looking now at my uniform that's hanging right there in that, on that hanger. And for about 30 to 40 seconds, he's just looking, studying at that uniform. He's trying to figure out what it is. And as he's looking at that uniform, his whole attitude and his whole expression changes. And he kind of looks at that, and now he's not as as aggressive as he was. And now he comes over to the window, and I have it down, and he takes his sunglasses off, and he says, What? Who are you? Now, I don't know why I said it, but I looked at him and I said, I'm a pathfinder. (laughs) And he looked at me like, (gasps) and I knew instantly he wasn't thinking what I was thinking. And so I quickly told him, I'm a minister, and we have, we have a, a, a situation where we have boys and girls work together. It's kind of like boys and girls, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, and we teach them Christian uh, values, and then when they, they earn certain va- uh, uh, requirements, we give them awards. And I was just heading for one of those awards. He took a deep breath, and, whew, and he said, well, we can't disappoint those kids, but would you please slow down? I said, yes, I would. And I did. But I want you to know something. It was the uniform that caught his attention. And it was the studying of that uniform that made him wonder, who is this guy? I want us all to realize tonight that as Christians, we wear a uniform. Now, that uniform may not be cloth, but that uniform is just as sure as you can spot a a, a pathfinder in a crowd, the uniform that a Christian wears is just as clear. Paul describes that uniform by when he says, As many as were baptized, they put on Christ. You have a uniform to be Christ like. Now, I, uh, a title, sermon, by the way, um, I really appreciate uh, the talent that is around us in this conference. And we have some incredible talent. And I'm teaming up tonight on this message. Now, I know it's the Lord that's going to give this message, but I'm teaming up tonight with Aaron Cruz, who is just a genius when it comes to this kind of stuff. And so he's going to be running my slides, our slides, and we are teamed up on this. So we went over this together. The title of our time together is, Who Are You? Subtitle, The Remnant and Its Mission. When we're done tonight, I've been asking the Lord to speak to all of our hearts, to let us know who we are. You can see what the theme is, knowing the time. It's about time for Christ to come. And right now there's confusion everywhere in this world. God wants a group of people that know who they are, know what they believe, and know what their mission is. And that's you and me. So I, spend, I just want to bow our heads in prayer and ask God to speak to our hearts tonight. Father in heaven, You have a message to deliver to our hearts. Now, we can speak to ears. And there are even times when when those ears can be tickled a little bit. But we can't speak to a heart. Only you can speak to a heart that will actually change the life. So, Father, tonight we're asking you to speak to our hearts. We're asking you to make it clear who we are. We're asking you to make us understand what the remnant is and what that message is and the importance and urgency of it. In a way that we could not do if it wasn't for you sending your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds. And Lord, we want Jesus to be honored and glorified tonight. For he's the theme of the Bible. He's the theme of salvation. And we thank you for hearing and answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. My mom was born into a Seventh-day Adventist home. But I want to make it very clear that Seventh-day Adventists are not born. You aren't born a Seventh-day Adventist. In order to become a Seventh-day Adventist, you have to engage your will, your choice. You see, there, there has to be a decision in your mind and in your heart that you are going to follow the Bible and its teachings. For the fabric of our Christian uniform consists, for an Adventist, of 28 fundamental beliefs that are the foundation of who we are and what our purpose is. Now, my dad wasn't born into a Seventh-day Adventist home, but with my mother's help, My dad studies his way right into the church. So when I was born, I had an advantage over many people. I was born into a family, Seventh-day Adventist family, who understood and had studied truth. So as a boy growing up, as a baby growing up, all the way until where I am now, but in the early start, I grew up with the understanding that there was a God. He was my creator. He loved me. And he wanted to talk with me and communicate with me. I grew up with the understanding that the Bible was the authority of life and the source of all truth. And that the Bible was not something you treated as a common book. Dad was very careful to teach us you didn't put anything else on the Bible. You treated the Bible with respect. But uh, by the time I was 10 years old, I had a pretty firm foundation, a very firm basic foundation of who God was. I knew a, I knew a little bit about the great controversy. I knew that there was a, a heaven and there was a devil on this earth. I knew that there was a Savior. Jesus was my Savior. I knew basic things about God. So as a 10-year-old at summer camp one summer, when the pastor got up and he gave the invitation for anyone who would like to study to be baptized to come forward, I responded. And every day that week, We studied. And with the permission of my parents and my pastor, I was baptized on that Sabbath. But baptism is not an end. Baptism is the beginning, it's the beginning of a new walk with God. Now, instead of God working on the outside, He can be on the inside and He can be working in my heart. As I grew, I was still developing an understanding of biblical principles that would form my value system for making decisions in my life. By the time I was 16 years old, I had met some friends who were challenging the Christian values that my parents had taught me. You see, up to this point, I was worshiping the God of my parents. And those values, those were my parents' values. I was attending Wisconsin Academy at the time, and Elder Dick Barron, some of you may remember him, Elder Dick Barron, I believe he was the youth director for the union at that time, came and held a week of prayer. Now, I don't remember what he said. I don't remember the topics all through the week. I wasn't paying attention. And when it came to Sabbath, it would be his last time to speak. He delivered a sermon. I don't know what he said. I didn't care what he said. But I can tell you what happened in the last five minutes because it's permanently ingrained in my mind and my heart. I'm thinking as I'm sitting in the seat, there's a row down the middle. There's a platform like this with stairs on the side. I'm sitting on the guy's side because the guy's sat on one side, the girl's sat on the other. Friends all around me. And I can hardly wait for this boring sermon to be over. He starts into his appeal. And as he starts into his appeal, he's talking to the ears. And God takes a hold of my heart. He skips those ears. And he goes right to the heart and he's starting to show me now where his way was going this way. I had diverged and I was going this way. And I was at a crossroads. And if I continued to go the direction I was going, I was going away from him. And I had to make a decision. And it's almost as if I could feel the flames of hell coming up right out of that seat. And that wasn't scaring me. That was just showing me what was happening. And I started to get this left out feeling. I don't think I want that. I think I want, I want Christ. And it's interesting when God speaks to the heart, all the other things are tuned out. And all you think about is what God is communicating with you. With. And so I'm thinking, okay, I think I'm going to stand up and I'm going to come forward on this call. And now I start to become more aware of what's happening around me. And I see that the elder Baron has finished his call. And I've missed it. I never heard a word he said. And now he's starting to turn and he's walking and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm getting left behind here. And so I started praying in earnest, Lord, I want to give my heart to you. Make him come back. And if he comes back, I'll stand up and I'll come forward. He slowed down and then he kept going. Standing right here, he slows down and and he keeps going. And I said, Lord, please, please, I, I mean it. If he stops, I'll go forward. Make him come, make him turn around. He slowed down as he came around the steps, and and then he took another step, and I'm praying earnestly, Lord, Lord, make him come back. Make him give one more call. All of a sudden, he stopped, and he turned around. and said, somebody better get up out of your seat. And I shot up out of my seat. All my friends laughed until they took one look at me. One look told them, there is no funny business here. Tears rolling down my cheek. I'm 16 years old. I don't care what anybody else says. I was i was not wanting to get left behind. Sixteen years old, tears rolling down, you're worried about what people think. I wasn't even thinking about what they thought until I stood up. And then I realized I was the only one standing. Now what do I do? I'm going forward. That's what I'm doing. So I went off to the side and I came around the end and, and there was Elder Baron to welcome me in. I want to tell you something. It was that day when the God... Of my parents became my God, those biblical values that my parents subscribed to were now my values. I can tell you i've never been the same since I'm still on the journey, so that means i'm not perfect. We're all on a journey, and that journey for us will all end when Jesus comes or the death or or the grave at ten years old. I had a basic understanding, just a basic understanding of the twenty eight fundamental beliefs. Now, many perhaps think that doctrines are complicated and boring theological compositions. Perhaps some look at doctrines as swords to fight with, but God gave them for a purpose, for reason. They're practical. God gave us doctrines to guide us in our growing relationship with Him and to give us a foundation and framework to build our knowledge and understanding of God. He gave us those doctrines to help us to understand and interpret Scripture and in life. See, if, if I was legally blind and I lost a small object at home, it's possible, it's possible that without my glasses, I might be able to find that small object. But it's much more probable that if I wear those glasses, I will see and find that small object. The doctrines that God has given us in the Bible are like the lens of those spiritual glasses. They help to shape and mold our understanding of Bible truth and understanding, and it puts it in a context in which it's understandable. Now, what is it that makes a Seventh-day Adventist different from any other entity. It's those 28 fundamental doctrines. The combination of them. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is not a time to be confused about who we are or our identity or what we believe. We need to know what a Seventh-day Adventist is and what they believe, and we need to live it. You see, the most, perhaps, unique, distinctive Seventh-day Adventist doctrine revolves around Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. But why Why is this understanding so important? Why does this one teaching connect us to the Bible's description of the remnant as no other doctrine does? For a Christian, our understanding of theological and spiritual things can be traced to two sources. One is tradition. Tradition is simply what we have been taught as truth, but is not derived from the Scripture or Bible. And the second source is the Scripture. God's written Word, the Seventh-day Adventist identity, is grounded. It's grounded in Scripture. We accept Scripture as the authority of life. It's the source of truth. It's the foundation of our faith. It shapes our understanding and our beliefs. Therefore, we recognize the authority of Scripture over tradition. It was the study of the Scriptures that led to the understanding of those 28 beliefs. Our approach to understanding Scripture is very simple. Number one, Scripture interprets itself. The hermeneutical principles we need to interpret Scripture must come from within Scripture itself. Number two, it's historical interpretation. simply means it's literal reading of Scripture. There's a real God who talks to us in real time. There's a real heaven. There's a real devil. There's real people. There's real events like the flood was real in the past and the second coming of Jesus is real in the future. See, Adventist theology is based on the belief that God interacts with humans and creation within time and space. Most Christians, however, assume that He does it outside of historical space and time, continuing. Many Christians believe that you can't talk to God like we talk face-to-face, ear-to-ear. They believe that you have to reach some kind of a spiritual level in which God can actually communicate with you. And they believe that there and teach that there are certain things that you need to do to empty your mind so you can reach that level where you can communicate with God. The interesting thing is they call it spiritual formation. But it's also interesting that Seventh day Adventists believe in spiritual formation, but 180 dif- degrees differently because we believe that God is real. We need to communicate Him. He says, Come, let us reason together. He says, Study so that you know, you, you know the scriptures. He says that the Holy Spirit is going to be our guide. So we believe that you need to engage your mind, not disengage. And so it's the word, the study of God's word com- combined with the teacher of the Holy Spirit, combined with the prayer that gives us a firm foundation of who we are, and that's called spiritual formation. You have to be careful to identify what a person means when they say spiritual foundation and formation, I mean. I, uh, I was on a plane traveling to the West Coast, and I sat next to a man who we started a conversation up, and he just offered the information that he was an atheist. So, said, oh, were you born into an atheistic home, or is that something you chose on your own? He said, well, no, I was born into a... Christian home but my dad was mean and when we were little he left my mom and all of us little kids to fend for ourselves. and I figured if that's what God was like I didn't want any part of it and there couldn't be a God that wasn't God and then he started to rail on how foolish it was to believe in such a thing as the Bible and then when he was done with that he turns to me and says hey by the way what do you do for a living? and I said well I'm a minister and he said oh yeah that was a good one he said, what do you really do for a living? I said, no, I'm really a minister. And his eyes narrowed, and he says, okay, prove to me there's a God. He said, no, I can't prove to you there's a God, but I can tell you why I believe there's a God. And he said, okay, why? I said, well, I talk to God every day. He said, does he talk back to you? And I said, yeah, he does. He communicates to me. He said, what, is, what, is, what does he sound like? Does he have a bass voice? Does he have a baritone? What does he sound like? And he wasn't being foolish. He was actually wanting to know. And I said, well, you know, the interesting thing about God is that He can communicate past the ears. He goes right to the heart and the mind. But I'll tell you, the, the way He talks to me the most, I, I, I sense impressions, but the way He talks to me the most is through the Bible. He says, I don't believe in the Bible. I said, well, that's a, a choice. I said, but I've chosen to believe that the Bible is God's Word, it's the standard of life, and it's a source of truth. So everything that I know about where I came from, where I am, and where I'm going and how to get where I'm going is all coming from the Bible. So my complete understanding is based on the Bible. So my reference for knowledge is Scripture. And he just kind of looked at me. We were talking about something else and he was mentioning that a friend of his did just died. And he said, hey, by the way, where do you think a person goes when they die? And I said, well, you have to remember my, my reference is Scripture. And so I can tell you what I believe based on what the Scripture says. And so I took him to various passages and... And let him know that, that when you die, you go to the grave. Jesus called it a sleep. And he asked me several, every time he would ask me a question, I'd still come back. I'd say, remember my source, my resource, my, my reference point is the Bible. For three hours, we just had a conversation. One after the other as he was talking. And finally, at the end, he said, you know, you're the strangest pastor I've ever met. <laughs> I said, why is that? He said, because when I told you I was an atheist, you didn't even argue with me. You just said, oh. Most pastors will argue with me. Why didn't you argue with me? I said, because it's a choice. I've chosen to believe in God. You've chosen not to, but it doesn't change who God is. He said, well, you know, I've never seen the Bible in that light. I'd like to read more about the Bible. For a Christian, our source is coming from Scripture. Through Scripture, we have a better understanding of who God is. We get to know God more. Our understanding enlarges in not just one area, but all areas. God says he's the source of wisdom. All understanding requires a context. You can't read without at the same time, usually uh, unconsciously, interpret what you read. We usually take something we know, and science will teach you this, you take something you know and try to, you take something you don't know and try to apply it to something that you do know so that you can understand it. So when we read scripture, we have to have some kind of a context to understand that. The sanctuary message didn't come to us by revelation. I believe Ellen White was a prophet. But she didn't come up with this by revelation. It came from Bible study. And you can go through the same text, the same study that they did, and you can verify the marks along the way. So the Bible sets the, the, the Bible is the source for our doctrines, and those doctrines set the context of all, under, all other understanding. The theme of the Bible is Jesus and the salvation of mankind. But God had a plan, a plan of salvation, and He wanted to demonstrate that plan of salvation in a way, a practical way, in which we all could understand. And so He gave us the earthly sanctuary where salvation was acted out for us in real time, in a real way. God had instructed Moses to make a sanctuary so that he could dwell the bible says there which articulates again how god is a loving real historical god who wants a relationship with his creatures it was here where god wanted to interface with mankind to rebuild the broken relationship that existed because of sin but but we know that that was only a token of His visible presence. Because God cannot be confined to any one place. You see, the Bible portrays God as a literal God in the sanctuary. But now, here's something you have to understand. Many Christians have embraced the pantheistic view that assumes God's personal reality is only spiritual. So while all Christians agree that the sanctuary speaks about reality, They assume it is only a spiritual reality and not a literal historical one. So when they look at the sanctuary, they just look at it as some kind of a story. They don't see it in the same light we do because we have a different understanding. Now, what I want to do in the next few minutes is go through a literal but practical explanation of how our doctrines fit together through the framework of the sanctuary, but I'm not going to be able to hit all the doctrines. It's just going to be a few. And there are going to be many, many details that I do not cover. But remember that coming to understand the sanctuary is a journey. When you study it, you understand certain things. When you study it more, you understand more things. It's a growing experience. And we're never going to be able to come to a complete, full knowledge, exhausted knowledge of the sanctuary. I'm only focusing on the overall importance of the sanctuary and how it relates to the remnant message. So let me go through, first of all, quickly, the structure of the sanctuary so that we all have in mind. First, it starts off, you see the sanctuary. The sanctuary is uh, in a courtyard. Outside of the courtyard, it represents the world that is full of sin in rebellion against God. Inside the courtyard is where God's presence is known to be. And God is calling everyone to come to him so that he can remove the sin from the heart. Once you go inside the courtyard, you're going to encounter the altar of sacrifice, sometimes called the burnt sacrifice of uh, the altar of uh, burnt offering. This is where you encounter Christ and forgiveness. Then you go from there to the laver just before you get into the tabernacle itself. And that represents baptism. Then you go into the holy place, which is the first part of the tabernacle. And when you look, when you come into the the, the tabernacle, on the right-hand side, you're going to see a table that's called the table of show bread. It has two stacks, and on each stack, there are six loaves of bread. The Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you drop down a little bit farther, and it says, and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. Jesus Himself said, I am the bread of life. This represents Christ and His Word. Then on the other side of of the room, there is a lampstand, a golden lampstand, which represents the Holy Spirit. And then between the holy and the most holy, there's a veil, and that veil also represents Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through the Son. That's that veil. Then in front of the veil, there's an altar of incense, which represents our ability to communicate with God, our prayers ascending to God. Then when you go inside the most holy place, you see the, the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony sometimes it's referred to. And it has two angels on either side, that hover over representing the cherubim that are around God's throne. But this represents God's throne. The top part of that chest is called the mercy seat. Underneath the mercy seat is an important item. It's the law of God, the Ten Commandments. That's the structure. But now I want to come back and I want to take you through the practical application as you walk through there. And I'm going to mention some of those doctrines that are are keyed in there, but first I want to tell you this. Some years ago, um, I was I sang in a quartet. Well, by the way, I really appreciated that quartet. But I sang in a quartet. And We went around in Michigan, and and we would put on church services and after church services they would have a fellowship meal. And while I'm standing in line in this fellowship meal, I'm looking at the food ahead of me, and and I'm 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 kind of a unique guy. My wife says because I like everything crunchy and crispy and burnt and dry. And I love the heel of the bread. It's my favorite part. And so as I'm standing in line, I'm looking down and I see this, this, this noodle casserole that has crispy on top. It got a little dark on one side. And I see that there's a thing with bread and there's one heel left. And I'm thinking to myself, why oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could get there and I could have that part and oh, that'd be just so wonderful. I don't know if I will or not. Maybe that person will take it. Maybe that person will take it. We'll, we'll see. And each one bypassed it. And when I got to it, it was still there. And I, oh, yes, hallelujah. And so I took all of the scrapings and put it on my plate. Yes. And then I reached out and I took that heel and I put it on my plate. And I said, yes. Oh, I got what I wanted. And all of a sudden, I felt a hand on my arm. And a lady reached up and she whispered in my ear, I saw what you did. And I thought, oh, no, they caught me. Ah. And then she said, you are so unselfish. You took something that no one else would take. And she thought that she was complimenting and she reproved me. We do not know the motives behind the actions. We do not know the thoughts. We cannot judge others. God can. And God keeps a complete record that is accurate of every thought, every motive, every action that you have committed. And he records it in what the Bible calls a book of remembrance. And when you recognize and you understand and you come to the knowledge that sin, the wages of sin, is death, and you realize that when you have sinned, your sin is going to cause your death. Not maybe, it will. And then when you hear about a Savior that's willing to take the penalty die the death that you deserve to die because of your own sin, and you want to embrace that and say, yes, I want, I want God to be my... I want Jesus to be my Savior, my sin-bearer, and you accept Him as your sin-bearer, your name goes into another book. It's called the Book of Life. And that name is registered there, and under that name it is, it is put, and Christ is your sin-bearer. So God had a, a, a plan by which the sin could be removed from you so that you would live and not die. And that plan called for some pretty hard things. Sin's a, we don't realize how hideous sin is. We don't realize that sin actually causes death because sometimes we take so for granted so much what Christ has offered to do that we don't appreciate it. But God had instructed them that when when they were convicted of a sin that they had committed and they, they recognized that that sin was going to cause their death and they wanted to live, they wanted to accept Christ's offer to be their sin bearer, they were to bring a lamb without blemish, it wasn't the lamb, there wasn't anything about the lamb that was bad, but that lamb represented Christ and they were to bring it to the front of the tabernacle, to that altar. And as the priest came out, they were to have that lamb and they were to recognize their sin, confessing their sin that was going to cause death, their death. But because of Christ's offer, they were now taking by faith God's offer to be their sin bearer and they were transferring their sin to the lamb which represented Jesus. But then they were required to take the life of that lamb because it's your sin and my sin that causes the death of Christ. And they were to slit its throat. The Bible says that blood represents life because you can't live without blood. Your blood count gets low and and you'll die from just the loss of, of blood. So God says the blood is going to be a symbol for life. So the priest was to take the blood and he was to take it into the sanctuary, the holy place. And before he went into the holy place, he was to wash his hands and his feet in the laver, which represented baptism. And then he was supposed to go in, Then he not supposed to, then he did go in before the veil and he would sprinkle that blood, symbolizing the transfer of sin from the sinner to the sanctuary through the blood of the Lamb. Now you might think, no, oh, wait a minute. When I ask for forgiveness, God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far will he remove my sins. Is that right? And he remembers them no more. But that text doesn't tell you where that sin is. It just says that God chooses not to remember them. You see, sin is like cancer. If you have cancer and you go in for surgery, the doctor will come out and you say, did you get it all? And what will he tell you? I got everything I could see, but I can't see motives, so I don't know if I got it all or not. God never misses out because He knows motives and He has a complete accurate record of it. And so what God is saying to you is that He separated your sin. He's transferred it, not blotted it out. But in faith, you recognize that God will blot it out, but not at the time in which you ask forgiveness. That is transferred to the sanctuary. And we understand that through that sanctuary message. You see, the sanctuary whole process of the sanctuary is to restore your relationship with God so that there's no distance between us. So now as a sinner, walk through this with me. At night, I don't know how it is with you, but my mom taught me to to pray. And she taught me every night to kneel down beside my bed and to confess my sins. And I told mom, I said, well, mom, I I don't, what, what, you didn't spank me and I didn't get in trouble. So did I sin? And she said, yeah, you did. Sometimes you sin in ignorance you don't know, and you, you, God has to show you how and what. So those sins you don't know, you ask God to cover you with the blood of Christ, but the sins that you do know, you need to confess. God expects you, that's your part. And so I don't know how it is with you. But when you kneel down beside your bed, you say, Lord, please forgive me for all the things I did today that weren't right, right? Do you ever think that that sin that you just flippantly asked God to forgive was, was going to cause your death? Did you ever think that, do you think that uh, that you're transferring that to Christ, meaning that He's going to die for that sin for you? It's not a flippant thing to come and ask God for forgiveness. And without it, you will die for your own sin. God didn't intend for it to be a glamorous thing because it's hideous thing. God intended for you to be so in love with Him that you would not want to hurt Him. That your desire would be to be like Him and hate sin. Not so that you could keep sinning and then just ask forgiveness and keep sinning. That's not what God had in mind at all. He had in mind that you would come to God, hate it, and God would give you the power so that you didn't do it anymore. So that in time you could live a life just like Christ did because now He lives in you. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's what God says can happen. So let's just take a a quick walk through. He encounters Christ, accepts Him as His sin-bearer. God forgives Him of His sin, transfers those sins through His sacrifice, and they go to the sanctuary. Now the sinner who has been freed from sin wants to get closer to Christ. So his next step is baptism. What does baptism show? It shows that I have accepted Christ as my sin bearer. That I have turned from just doing my own thing. I'm no longer mine. I've been bought with a price. Now I belong to God. And so I've accepted the Holy Spirit to come into the inner part of my decision-making area to teach me how to make the proper choices with my will. And it's also the entrance into God's church. Now I want you to know we have a doctrine on Baptism. And we have a doctrine on the church, who the church is. The church is made up of everyone who's going through this process. So now I become a member of God's church. And I step into the holy place in my journey to get to be with the Father. Because Jesus' prayer in John 17 was was that we would be one with the Father as He is one with the Father. That's what His prayer is, and that's where our journey will take us. And so now you step into the holy place, and what do you have? You have a growing experience of an opportunity to, to grow. You have an opportunity to learn from God's Word. You have a teacher that is supplied with you, to you, and then you have the opportunity to talk to God direct. And through that process, you develop Christian principles that help to guide you. The Holy Spirit uses them to guide you through life. I want you to notice something right right here. You, one of the doctrines that we have is the Trinity, and there are a lot of... Um, attacks on the Trinity, and I wish I had more time to expound upon it, which I don't. I can already see my time is is going away. But I want to tell you this. The Godhead is made up of three individuals, all with the name God. It's like a last name. But all three are equal in all ways. They're all-knowing. They're all-powerful. That means they have life within themselves, and they could be everywhere at once. But there's no competition. They recognize the Father... He's, called him, he, he's chosen to call and refer, have us refer to Him as the Father, as the ultimate ruler. There's no desire to, to be someplace else. They, they have a love that is strong. So they have divided up the plan of salvation with different roles. The Father plays the role of, a, of, of, of the ultimate presence of God where sin cannot be. Jesus plays the role as our sacrifice, our substitute. The Holy Spirit, and our example, the Holy Spirit plays the role of our teacher, our comforter. He convicts us of sin. and they all work together for the same purpose, to restore us, so that we can be reconciled with them in their unveiled glory., you know, there's a doctrine of stewardship that comes into role, and here's how it plays in. When I, when I give my heart to Christ, I don't belong to myself. I'm no longer free to do anything I want. I no longer have my own money, my own time. I want to do my own thing. No, that's gone. Now I belong to God. And I'm a steward of everything that He's entrusted to me. Christian behavior. Another doctrine that we have. I want to model what Christ did. And so my whole Christian behavior is modeled after Christ. Not after what I want. What I want to feel or what I want to experience. Now it's what what can I do to honor and glorify God? see, in the, in the in the model of the sanctuary, all of our doctrines fit in intricately and deepens our understanding of who we are. Now, I need to hurry. All of those sins are transferred to the sanctuary, and they are on that 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 symbolically they are on that veil. But the sanctuary has to be cleansed, and we above all people should know about the cleansing of the sanctuary because there were two very important texts that were fueling our whole existence as Adventists. Daniel 8.14, under 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary was going to be cleansed. We understand what that means. The other text was Revelation 14.6, three angels' message. That's the first angel, and the second and the third follow. But we come back to the cleansing of the sanctuary. We understand what that means. That means that there's going to come a time when God is going to take away the sin from that sanctuary and purge it. How is He going to do that? The first part of the sanctuary was how where God removed the sin on a daily basis. It was, it was called a daily occasion. But one time a year, the sanctuary was cleansed. Now, they repeated that year after year because it was uh, a lesson for them. But in real time, it's only done one time. They killed a lamb every day if they wanted the forgiveness. We don't. Christ was on land, and he died one time. So how does how do the sins get out of, of the sanctuary? Well, there was a process for that. God had two goats brought, and then they cast lots to find out which was God's goat, which was not. The one that fell on God's goat represented Christ, and that goat was slain. And his blood was going to be sprinkled over first the altar of incense, and then it was going to be sprinkled on the mercy seat, representing that he's dying, the death, that those sinners should have died. The second goat was representing Satan. And what happened is the priest would come out, the sins were were symbolically placed, the priest carried them out, and he put his hand on that goat, and he confessed all those sins on that goat that represented Satan. And some are saying, see, Satan is our sin bearer. No, he does not Sin had already been covered. The death had already, that, without the shedding of blood, there's no, re, no, no forgiveness of sin. Christ was our sin-bearer. But Satan is responsible for the sin that you and I commit because he is constantly enticing us to sin. And so the responsibility for the sin that was committed is placed back on Satan where it belongs. And now Satan has to bear the responsibility for his own part in those sins. I, uh, I know this is a very deep subject and yet it should be so simple that we understand that Christ is our sender. But there's something else that you have to understand and it's important for you to know that because this is an important part of who we are as a remnant. You see, while the priest on the Day of Atonement went into the Most Holy before God, if there was one unconfessed sin in his heart, he would have been dead. And he represented the whole group of people. So while he was making sure there was no sin in his heart, all of the rest of God's people were searching their own heart to make sure that there was no sin in their heart. You see, there's a judgment going on right now. I'm going to come back to those books real quickly. There's a record of every sin that you've committed and the motive behind it and the thoughts behind it. Then there's another book that has the book of life. That's the book that has a name in it. You accepted Christ, your name is in the book. And you might say, well, well, that should be the end of the story. No, it's not the end of the story. Why isn't it the end of the story? It's because you have free will. You can choose to either... Have your name in the book or out of the book. You can choose to have Christ as your sin bearer or you can choose not to. And if you choose not to, then you bear your own sins. And God is saying that there is coming a time in which His work as Jesus' work as priest is going to be ended. There will be no more time for forgiveness. It will be done. happens two, two times. When you die, no more chance for change. And when you're living... When Christ's work is done, no more chance for change. So Christ gives us the opportunity. So a person who has died doesn't receive the reward because the reward hasn't been determined yet because not until God does, cleanses the sanctuary will that happen. And it will happen for everybody. And so God goes through the record book and He says, Oh, I see Jim Mitchiff here. He gave his heart when he was 10 years old. He wandered a little bit. But he came back when he was 16 years old. And he's, he's made a lot of mistakes. But he has the blood of Christ right next to him. And he never chose by his life to reject his Savior. He stays in the book. Now, if that had been different, if it had gone through that same thing, okay, he gave his heart when he was 10. All right, he wandered a little bit. When he was 16, he renewed it. And then when he was uh, 45, he decided he was just done with that and he was going to do his own thing. No. Christ can't be a sin bearer, and His name comes out. We don't like the thought of that. We'd rather have the thought when you give your heart to God, then it's all done, doesn't matter what else you do. You, do, you do. That's not the way the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you have a choice. You can you can choose to have Him, or you can choose not to have Him. I'm going to tell you the important thing, why. Why is the Seventh-day Adventist church the remnant, and the only visible church of God today. Boy, that's a bold statement. And if I was making that statement about individuals, it would be arrogant. But I'm not. I'm making that statement about a message that this church has. And that church has a message that's substantiated behind God's word, and it's true. There's only one way. We know the way. And that's why the second angel says Babylon has fallen. Those entities that claim to lead you to Christ, they're, fall- they're not going to lead you the right way. And the third one says, come out of them. Christ is right now in the heavenly sanctuary, a real sanctuary. He's right now our intercessor. There is an opportunity for us to surrender our hearts to Christ and to continue to surrender every day and moment of our life. God says when you do that, the end result is that you will be in heaven. Why? Because I'm going to finish the work I've begun in you. I'm taking responsibility for you. But if I don't, if I just play church and I just kneel beside my bed and say, Oh, Lord, forgive me for all my sins. And I'm off. I'm up and into bed. Next day, oh Lord, forgive me for my sins. Well, I'm saved. No, God says that when you have a loving relationship with Him, He's going to take the sin, then the desire for it, out of you. It's not enough to continue to live for Christ and sin and live for. Christ. No, God is saying no, no, no. I want to prepare you for heaven. I want you to stand in my unveiled glory. So what is our, oh, you know, I wanted to say this, but my time is way past. So I'm not going to say that. I, I don't know, you know, I'm standing before the family, and I'm talking to you as a daddy would talk to his children. And I'm saying to you, don't play church. You have a Bible, and you have a Holy Spirit who wants to teach you what's in the Bible. You do not have to be confused. There are those who have been led ahead of us, who have mapped out a way through Scripture and understanding that we can stand on the shoulders of, Those 28 fundamental beliefs, don't let them be considered boring in your mind. Study them out. If you know those fundamental beliefs, God will use them to guide you through uncharted water that's just ahead of us. Our mission is clear. We need to experience, first of all, salvation for ourselves so that God becomes our God. Those values become our values. And then we need to share our experience with others. That's our mission. Simple. God's the one that's going to coordinate this church. We're going to do everything we can to cooperate, and He's going to lead us. But He's going to turn this world upside down. If you want to be a part of the remnant, God's offered you. But just because you're a member of the Seventh-day Adventist church doesn't make you a remnant. The remnant are those who have embraced God's truth for themselves and are living it and now have something to share to others. So my question for you tonight, who are you? Are you a Seventh-day Adventist? If so, why? It's one thing to claim it. It's another thing to be it. And if you are, you don't have to worry about your response. It's just going to come out. You'll demonstrate it through your actions first, and then your words may come later. How many of you want to be what God's called you to be? If that's your case, your situation, just stand wherever you are or raise your hand. Father in heaven, you see our hearts. You see how hard it is for us to turn our back on the world just like it was for Lot's wife. You see how hard it is for us To keep our mind focused because we're so preoccupied with other things. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand. Understand what you've done for us. Understand the message that you've given to us. Help us to understand what our purpose is. Help us to understand who we have been called to be and understand what we can be through you. Lord, I want to pray for each person with the sound of my voice that can hear that you would strengthen and sustain them. You promised that you would present us faultless. You would allow Jesus to present us faultless before you. And Lord, we want to take you up on that. We want Jesus to be our sin bearer. We want to honor him and we want to glorify him. We want him to live out his life in us. And Lord, we're asking that you would take the desire for sin and selfishness and all of those other things out of us. Reprove us. Correct us. Whatever it takes, Lord, that we might honor and glorify you. And then Lord, put us to work. Help us be your extension of your hands and your feet. For we ask this in Jesus' name. And Lord, I want to ask one more thing. As we've just started our camp meeting, I want to ask that you would continue to draw us step by step closer through this camp meeting time. Help us to make the most of this time so that we will have a deeper love relationship with you, a deeper understanding of what what, and who we are. And when we leave this place, we will make a deeper impression on those in which we're coming in contact with, not about ourselves, but with you, for you. For well, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org audio 22, or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.